I'm okay with feedback. Um, so you won't hurt my feelings. And um, if you would like to, I mean, I'll try to solicit response sometimes. But if you have something that's really burning on your heart, if you lift your hands and I'll recognize you at the proper time. So last week we did First Timothy chapter 2. How, ma- how many of you felt like that that was controversial? Nobody in here. Everybody's good. <laughs> Rand- Rand- Randy's shaking his head. Uh, it has been in recent years. I want to just, just to tie in with that, and we'll, we'll go to First Timothy in just a second, but turn to Galatians chapter 3. This is a passage of Scripture that, um, in my view, is used wrongly sometimes when we talk about the issue of the roles, gender roles, and how the Lord has assigned different roles to men and to women in some regards, for sure. I think this passage in Galatians 3 is misused, and so I just want to point it out to you. Um, It's Galatians 3, verse 26 to 29. Let's read it, and then we'll have a little discussion in light of what we talked about last week. For you, verse 26, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. So what's put out there a lot is that There's neither male nor female. So what does that mean? First of all, what is the context that Paul is talking about in Galatians 3? That's used, by the way, to say that women can have whatever role they want in leadership because Jesus has done away with gender roles as far as leadership goes. Is, Is that what verse 28 says? What is the context? Come on, y'all, help me. The context is anybody can be saved. We're all in the body of Christ. We all have equal standing before the Lord. We're all part of one body. He even says to the men and the women, you're all sons of God. And that, that is the word sons. It's not children. So all you ladies, you are sons of God. And the idea behind sons is that there is privilege associated with being a son of God. There's inheritance that comes with being a son. And everybody carries that privilege equally. This passage in Galatians 3 is not talking about church government, is it? It's not talking about that at all. So to to cherry, this is what we call, what I call, cherry picking. You pull a phrase out of a passage that is talking about something entirely different and try to apply it to what it isn't speaking of, and that's um, not legal. That's abusing the scripture. So I will throw that out there for you, and um, we can can move on into um, 1 Timothy chapter 3. But, But has it ever occurred to you that our gender roles and what God has assigned to us as men and as women is really not about us, but it's about him. 
So men, husbands are the head of their wives. Why are they the head of their wives? Not so they can dominate them, so that they can actually sacrifice their life for them because that is a picture of what Jesus does for his church. You know, in, in premarital counseling, I often say to the guys, look, all you've got to do is lay down your life every day, no big deal. <laughs> Which is harder, like that's, that's laying down your life is what Jesus did for us. And so our role as authority, any role of authority that God gives in scripture, in the home, even in government is sacrificial for the benefit of those who are under the authority. This is the lie that culture has told us over and over again, is that to be under authority is to be oppressed, to be minimized. It's to be belittled. And that is exactly false. The Bible says to be under authority is to be blessed and to be protected. And we're all under authority and we should be okay with that. Our role and the role that God assigns to us is about him mostly, it's not about us. We take it as being about our identity. And it's not really, it's, it's a role that God has assigned in creation because he wants us to mirror and to image what he's like. And so for us as husbands, we image and mirror what God is like, not by demanding our own way, not by abusing our wives, but by laying down our lives and our own preferences and our own time and our own desires for their sake so that they will be blessed. And the wife images the church who says to Jesus, what do you want me to do? I'll gladly do that. That's beautiful. That's not oppressed. That's beautiful. And so for us to accept our, our roles um, is actually accepting the picture that God is trying to paint through our lives and the roles that he's given us. So I'll move on from there. Are you all okay with it? Is that a little awkward in the, in the um, discussion of that? So chapter three, let's read verses one through seven, and then we wanna talk about it. It's a trustworthy statement, verse one. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, and I'm going to write three words on the board that we'll talk about. My writing is not neat. Ever since I was in third grade, my teacher told me I should be a doctor. Um, my brother is a doctor, has neat writing, and I was a landscaper that had very messy writing. Um, First, and then we're going to talk about church leadership. That's pretty bad writing. Um, the, these are Greek words, and I'm not putting them on the board to, be, to try to be smart or anything like that. It's because you can make a connection with these words. The word that we're reading here, it's a trustworthy statement, and I said I'd read down through verse 7, and I lied. Um, let's just pause there for a moment. Verse 1, it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer. This is the word. The old King James translated it as bishop, which is highly confusing because it doesn't have anything to do with high church office at all. But the whole Episcopal, Episcopos, Episcopal church is built on the model of bishops being 
in the lead. And you may know this or you may not, but the King James Bible, written in 1611 in the first edition, was sanctioned by King James I. But the translators were under a lot of pressure because he didn't have a problem killing you if you didn't do what he told you. And so they translated some words um, under duress, under pressure. Um, this is one of them. So this became the bishop, which the early church in the New Testament knew nothing about bishop because it wasn't a thing. But in 1611, it was a thing, and they needed a passage of Scripture that said that they were a thing and that they were in charge. And so they translated it as bishop, which is very misleading. Um, they also translated some passages in 1 Corinthians 13 instead of love is not provoked, they said love is not easily provoked because King James was famous for having a hot temper. So he would always justify it saying, I'm not really easily provoked just because I beheaded my second wife. She, she deserved it, but not, not, not easily provoked. So just saying there are some words in the King James that are politically motivated in their translations because King James is the one who was standing behind it to make sure. All right, next word is presbuteros. Everywhere translated in the New Testament as elder. The third word is poimain, which is the word, sorry about this writing. We had a little technical difficulty with the headset, so I can't hold the board and write. Shepherd. These are the three titles of leadership in the New Testament church, beginning in the book of Acts and throughout the letters, and Paul talks about them in some length because in First and Second Timothy and in the book of Titus, he's instructing them to set in elders. What is, what is the difference between these offices? Some of you know this, but if you can follow this through and I can show you this very clearly in Scripture if, if we need to. Episcopos is overseer not bishop, presbyteros is elder, poimen is shepherd. And so these three, I want to submit to you, are actually all talking about the same person. They're not different offices, they're the same. Does anybody want me to show you where that is in scripture? That these are the same thing? Are you, are you okay with that? Do you feel like you know where that is? Okay. Let's, let's look and see. Acts chapter 20, it will only take two um, passages of scripture to show you that this is the case. These are the same, and I'm gonna explain that to you. And this explains our system of leadership in heart of the Father. Um, we actually got it from the scripture. So, Acts 20, Paul calls to himself, um, verse 17, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the, what did he, who did he call? He, he called the elders, presbyteros is the Greek word, he called the elders. What denomination, by the way, came from that? Presbyterian. Um, he called the elders, plural, from the church in Ephesus. And let's skip down 
um, to verse 24. He's getting ready to go to Jerusalem. I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. I, I, want, I want to leave this earth being able to say that. Be on guard. Look at verse 28. This is, this is where you got it. Be on guard for yourselves and for all of the, what? The flock. Who would that be referring to? Okay. Be on guard for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Who did he call? He called the elders. He said that you're to watch the flock and the Holy Spirit has made you overseers of these people that God has given you. The church of God, he's made you overseers to shepherd. There we go again. That's two checks on that one. To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So, can you see that he called the elders... They're to shepherd, and they're the ones that the Holy Spirit made overseers. All three of those words are used, and they're applied to the same individual people. So why are there three different words? Why are there three different titles? Why don't we just say that they're elders? Here's, here's the reality, and I'll show you this. We'll go to 1 Peter 5. Elder speaks of the maturity of the man. And we're going to talk about some of the qualifications there's actually 14 qualifications of an elder. So you all can see if I need to be fired. Um, elder speaks of the maturity of the man and the qualifications of his personal life and testimony and walk with God. Overseer speaks of the governing authority that he's given over the people of God to guide, to lead, to direct and to protect. Shepherd speaks of feeding, caring for, watching over, loving dearly. Those protecting them from uh, wolves and all of that kind of thing. So this is the person's character. These two are the function. The elders have two functions, two main functions. They shepherd and they oversee. That's really it. Want to see another passage that says the same thing? 1 Peter chapter 5, flip over there, and then we'll, we'll move back into 1 Timothy. 1 Peter chapter 5. Verse 1. Therefore I exhort thee, elders, right? I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Verse 2, shepherd, right? 
Are you following? Who's doing the shepherding? The elders. The elders, right? Shepherd the flock of God among, which is among you, exercising what? Oversight. Same word. Exercising oversight. Elders, shepherd the flock of God, exercise oversight over them. All three of those applying to the same individuals. This is the person's character and life. This is the care for the sheep. This is the oversight of the church. It's the same people. So, to me, that's really clear. Is that, is that clear to you that, that that is the case? Okay, that's, how, that's why we set up the, the leadership and heart of the Father the way it's set up. Because we saw it in Scripture from the first time that Paul and Barnabas planted churches in Acts chapter 14. It says in verse 23 of Acts 14 that they set in elders, plural, in every church, singular. It's an interesting fact that there is no reference in the New Testament that identifies any individual as a shepherd or a pastor. Not one. If there is, give me their name. They're not there. There's apostles, there's prophets, there's evangelists, and there's teachers. And we have their names. But there's no one who's called a pastor in the entire New Testament. Why do you suppose that is? Not because there aren't pastors, because the pastor is a shepherd, but because they run in packs. They, they, they're in a group every time. And so you don't have a person who would be called the pastor. Yes, sir. Right. Um, Ephesians 4.11 says, when Christ rose, he gave gifts to men. He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and some teachers. Right? Those are all in the plural form. Right? They're all in plural. He's talking about the gifts that he gave to the church. Yes, he gave them. But nobody in the New Testament after that that is the only time that the noun form of poimen is used in the New Testament, other than Jesus being the good shepherd and that kind of thing, and actually shepherds in the field. But from a, a church government standpoint, that's the only noun form of the, of the word shepherd, which is poimen, that is used in the New Testament, speaking of individuals, but it's in, it's in the plural. Because they, they hang in a pack. They're in a group. They're, they're plural elders together in every church, singular so the two verb forms of this word of shepherd, we just read them. There's only two in the New Testament, Acts 20 and 1 Peter 5. That's pretty telling to me. That is applied to these guys in both cases. So all I'm saying is th there's this many, zero, there, there, there's nobody in the New Testament identified as a pastor. Why is that? Because there's not the ministry of pastor? Oh, no. No. But because it's always done in plurality. These guys hang together. Just like when Paul called the elders from Ephesus to come to meet with him. And in every church, this is the case. Um, in the early church. 
Okay, so, and, and this is not a throwdown on, on the senior pastor model, but there are strengths in the plurality model that are, in my view, profound. Um, what are they? Well, if I screw up big time and play the fool, Dave and Brandon will sit me down. If there's not somebody in the room that can tell you to sit down and shut up, then I say you don't really have accountability. They would sit me down and they go, you don't need to be doing anything other than getting your life right because this is not okay. But the church wouldn't crash and burn. And the people would still be cared for. And they would care for my soul. And I would actually be restored to healthiness. That, that's a win. There, there's real accountability in plurality too. In, in that we all know each other's business. Like these guys know, you can take my phone anytime you want. You can come on any of the device that I haven't go through anything that I've, I've typed or received or whatever. It's there. We talk about our family lives. We talk about our marriages. We talk about our kids. We talk about our own heart and our soul and our struggles and our, like we do. And, and there's something that's really healthy about that that brings true accountability. We ask each other for prayer. Um, so to me, it's very beautiful, and it's healthy. I feel safe myself, but I feel safe for you because I'm not going to play the fool, and then you're going to pay the price for it and go to the bottom of the lake with me. Has that ever happened in the body of Christ? Hello? Yeah. So, so there's, there's real accountability that comes with plurality that is pretty powerful, and there's also... What, what other advantages are there? Well, there's different graces. There's different deposits of Jesus that are in each of us or each of the elders. And so you get a diversity of expressions of the grace of God and of the gifting of God. So that's a win. That's a win for you. And that's a win for all of us. There's also the longevity issue for us where we don't have to preach five services a week. And then we're dead in 10 years, you know, like I can't take this anymore. I'm quitting in, in shepherding the sheep and being able to make decisions together and try to get the mind of God is so helpful because there's some problems that are so thorny and difficult. You're like, what in the world? And we'll pray together about it. Look, Lord, what are you saying? What, how should we navigate this? There, there's, there's a lot of beautiful advantages of it. And I know in our culture that folks tend to like, you know, the, the, I mean, a lot of church model is get the charismatic guy who's powerfully gifted and put him up there and then you'll, you'll draw a crowd and that's the way you build a church. But it's not a healthy way. It's not a family way and it's not an accountable way. Accountability is the most slippery word in the world. No leader that you have seen fall into gross sin and bring reproach upon the name of Jesus, not one of those leaders would say they did not have accountability, not one. They would all say they had accountability. But accountability is nothing if it doesn't have teeth. If it doesn't mean that somebody can take you and go, you're done for now, then it's not real. And so this model to me is genius. I didn't make it up. It's in the Bible, but it's genius because it protects the people and it also protects those who are leading so that they don't burn out. Ever heard of burn, burnout in ministry? I can tell you why it happens. I can tell you every week why it happens. 
Because it's hard to hear and to bear the burdens of people that are broken, that are hurting. It's hard to, to do all of that and to do the work of the ministry. And sometimes, you know, this is not crying at all. I'm joyful. I'm, I'm grateful. But there are lots of really good um, things that protect your own heart and leadership when you're running together. And um, we bring correction to each other. And we help each other to, to walk straight and to love Jesus with a pure heart. And we reassure each other of no, no, this is what we have to do because um, we're, we're going to honor the Lord. Our first question is, what does God want? How can we give it to him? We want to honor him, and that's a big deal. So maybe that's too much of a ramble on the leadership thing. But, but for some of you, maybe this is a new thing, like you haven't pondered this. Take the scriptures and ponder them and, and see, and I believe that you'll see that that is in there. So, all right, let's talk about whether I should keep my job or not. The qualifications of a leader. I'm going to, this time, actually read down through verse 7 of 1 Timothy chapter 3. It's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of an overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer, then, must be above reproach. I'm going to read these 14. feels daunting. You only have 14 things that you have to excel at, brother. No worries. Um... Let's read down to verse 7, and then we'll come back. An overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine, or pugnacious. What's pugnacious mean? You're a scrapper. You always want to fight about something. But gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. That's quite a list. Um, we'll talk about some of them more than other. But over, I think the banner over this whole list is the first one. He must be above reproach. What, what would you say, g- give me some suggestions as to what that would mean to be above reproach. It, I'll give you a hint. It doesn't mean you're sinless. It doesn't mean you don't make mistakes. What, what, what would above reproach mean when you're talking about a leader? Honest, okay. Humble, okay. I think we're throwing, I think the general idea of above reproach is nobody can look at you and go, he's a church leader? No way. It's that. For people who are looking objectively from the outside, he's a church leader? No. He's a womanizer. He's a drunkard. He's a swindler. He had his business. He cheated me. He, no. Like, there's that. There's the things of the trail that you leave behind your life is the whole issue of being above reproach. It doesn't mean that before Christ you were that, but there has to be a history and a trail that actually shows that you have a real relationship with Jesus and you're walking that out, not that you don't make mistakes. Um, 
but, but I think that is the banner overall. And so let's talk about the one that is the, probably the most controversial, which would be the next one, the husband of one wife. So I want you to think about what that means. What does it mean that an overseer has to be the husband of one wife? So there's several things that it could mean. What could it mean? Monogamous. Okay. So are you saying... Let, let, let's let's put the let's put them up here and let's wrestle it out a little bit. Husband of one wife. Sorry about my pen here running out. All right, so you said monogamous, so that means that you're not a polygamist. Is that the point? Okay, you can only have one wife at a time. Okay, I think that's obvious, right? You're not a polygamist. You don't have multiple wives. The, the interesting thing is that that actually was a thing with, with Jewish people at the time of this writing is that there were Jewish men who had multiple wives. It wasn't a thing with the Gentiles, surprisingly. Why, do, why don't you think it was a thing with the Gentiles? The Gentiles didn't do polygamy. What is it? No, they, they got married, but they had mistresses, they had concubines, they had prostitutes. They didn't, get, they didn't have any sexual mores. So, like, why well, say, of course I'm not going to have two wives. I'm going to have to support them. You have your wife, the Gentiles in Rome, you had a wife to have legitimate children for yourself that could carry your name and carry on the heritage of your family. That's why you did. All the other... Women that you had were just for your own pleasure. Just the way it was. So Gentiles didn't have an issue with polygamy because they didn't care. Who cares? The Jewish people did. So, so that probably maybe was in the back of Paul's mind. I don't think that was the main thing. But for sure, polygamy is not okay. So other suggestions. Husband of one wife. What, could, could it mean? Could it mean that an overseer must be married and not single? Do you think that? Okay, why not? Paul, right. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 is saying, I wish that you were all like me because I can devote all of my time to Jesus and I'm not divided with my wife. That's not a put down on marriage. He's saying, but everybody has their own gift and their own grace from God. And being single and being celibate is a grace from God. It's, it's a gift from God. So I don't think, I don't think that that is a, is a real thing. I need to find a new pen. What else? Divorced. Okay. Wow. You gonna run up to Walmart? No, it's all good. Let, let me see if I can get one. That's better. Okay. So let's talk about this one. 
This is probably the biggest. Does being the husband of one wife mean never divorced? Yes or no? I'm sorry, say again? Yes. Well, let's, I, I agree. Some denominations are a lot of ways, but what saith the scripture? What do, you, what do you believe the Bible teaches about this? If, you're, if you've ever been divorced, are you disqualified from leadership in the church? Okay, why not? Okay, one wife at a time. Right, it would be the polygamy thing. I'm, I, I'm not sure that was in the forefront of Paul's mind because it wasn't super common. It did happen. Um, but all Christians, you know, Christ, polygamy was not accepted in the church at all. Zero, nada. There was no tolerance for that. So I doubt there would be somebody who would have the track record to be an elder that would still be a polygamist. I, I really doubt that. I, I doubt, I mean, this clearly is out, right? We, we all agree, right? Polygamy is not in. It's out. But I don't think that was in the forefront of Paul's mind. Could it mean not divorce? So here's the question we have to ask. Does that mean if you were divorced before you were saved that you're out? Okay, why not? Does, does that mean if your first wife died and you remarried, you're out? Okay. Because you have a second wife... No, because the scripture says in Romans chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, that when the spouse dies, you're free from that covenant, and so they're free to remarry, and they're not committing adultery. Paul said that very plainly in Romans 7, 2 and 3. So we, we know it's not that. So if you are divorced as a Christian, are you automatically out from leadership? Yeah. Right. Very, very, very good. It does matter. I believe it does matter. So, husband of one wife, if you were divorced because your spouse abandoned you or because they committed adultery or were serial, serial adulterers, are you then not free? I think Paul says that you are. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you're free from the covenant. And so that would not be, in my view, that's not a disqualifying divorce. But it means something. There's a way to, many scholars translate this phrase as, sorry again about the, they translate it like this, a one woman, man. And that is a pretty literal translation of the Greek there, a one woman man. What would that mean? I think it has the connotation primarily. So I would say this, okay, let's talk about number three and four. For number three, if someone aspired to leadership in the church and they had been divorced, then we need to look at that. We need to look at what happened. If their spouse committed serial adulteries on them, they, they tried to reconcile and, and they wouldn't, those kinds of issues, or if there was serious abuse, there were drug dealers, they went to prison, um, 
you know, killed somebody, that, you know, that kind of thing, then that would be a consideration, right? Why, why did this happen? Um, I think it should be considered. If somebody has had a history of being married, divorced, married, divorced, married, divorced as a believer, then that should be considered. Is that going to be the kind of role model that should be in leadership to demonstrate to the flock what marriage is supposed to look like? That, that's a consideration. This one woman man thing is, I think is, a, is real. And so I think his point is, if, if, you, if your life is not being an example of what marriage should be, because we're known most clearly by the closest relationships in our lives. That's what reveals who we really are. And, and if we treat our spouse in a way that is dishonoring, that dishonors the Lord, dishonors his purposes, then I would say, even if you're not divorced, that's probably disqualifying until that gets fixed. The point of a one woman man is, he doesn't go around flirting. Thank you, Richard. He doesn't mouth off at his wife. He doesn't tear her down. He doesn't demean her in front of her friends and in front of the kids. He doesn't demand from her in a harsh way. He treats her like Christ treats the church because he's got to be an example to the flock, right? That's what Peter said. And so if, if the marriage is not such that the man is an example to the flock, then that might be disqualifying with or without a divorce because he's got to be able to do that. And our life, again, the closest relationships that we have are the things that reveal what our life is really made of. Nobody knows you like your spouse and your kids. Your kids know if you're a hypocrite. Yeah, they know. They know if you say one thing and you're different in church than you are at home. They, they know. They know what you're like when you get up. And they know what you're like. They're like Santa Claus. They know you. And the history of the, of the church has been, I mean, I've, I've had, I've never, I was never a church kid hanging around with other church kids. But even when I got older, just the feedback from preacher's kids wasn't overall positive. They saw hypocrisy and they also felt neglected and sacrificed on the altar of ministry. So all of those things come into play. Are, are you a one woman man? Do when people look at you, do they see that you treasure your wife and treat her well? That's a question. Do, do they see that there is a something in your heart towards your wife where she feels safe and protected and loved and cherished. That's important. Devoted to your wife, faithful. Um, it's, it's always chafed me in a big way when I see married guys in a restaurant and they'll be flirting with the waitress. Or I just want to throw something at them. I've been in circles in married group way back in the day probably before any of you were here, early part of Heart of the Father, real early. Gather around, the guys are talking, the ladies are talking, you know how that happens. And in the circle I'm in with the guys, and I'm an introvert, so I just basically stand there and listen, and 
and uh, say something every once in a while. But the conversation goes like this. Yeah, my wife thinks she's got a money tree in her head. She thinks that she can spend money and all this stuff. She goes out shopping, she blah, 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 blah. And, and here the conversation goes that way. And I'm sitting there going, for real? This is happening right in front of my eyes. And so then, you know, other people chip in. It wasn't horrible. But so here's me liking to call, I, I like to cause the wrestle. I said, can, can I ask you a question? Um, why would you want to tear down the greatest gift that God has given you in your life? Why would you want to do that? That was super awkward. Really awkward. Then the conversation went, all the air got sucked out of the room. But you know what? That never happened in my presence again. Never. And I'm okay with that. Like, why would you do that? Don't do that. Be a one-woman man where you're devoted to your wife, dedicated, and you cherish her. Every husband knows we're not perfect at it. We have fails, but we need to repent when that happens. But the overall picture should be when people see you, they know you love your wife. One woman man. All right. Number three, temperate. I think that speaks of self-control. Don't fly off the handle. Um, You're not extreme in your actions. Anything else? Feel free to throw in. I mean, there's a, there's a long list here, for sure. So temperate number number four is prudent. What would that speak of? You've got some sense, right? You've got some wisdom in how to deal with the affairs of life. I mean, this stuff is not like rocket science, but it's basically saying, what kind of person do you want to have as as a leader, an overseer, who's going to actually be healthy to do the job? Respectable. Um, I mean, for me, I felt like I had a grace for sarcasm at one point in my life. I I just, you you know, when it's just that juicy, I mean, you just, you just want to say it. It's just perfect. It's just like, boom, and you just back up and just let it happen. But I know for me, the, the Holy Spirit is like, I don't like that. You stop that. Don't do that. Even though everybody laughs, it still hurts. Don't do that. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Right. Right. I mean, that's abandonment. I see in Scripture that there's two main causes, two main reasons for divorce. Okay. Here we go. Y'all thought it was controversial last week. Um, two main reasons for divorce. Jesus said adultery. Okay, that's sexual unfaithfulness in the marriage. Breaks the covenant. It doesn't mean you have to divorce. But there's grounds for divorce there. And the second one, I think, is in second, in 1 Corinthians 7 there where it talks about abandonment. If, if, you, if your spouse leaves you, 
and walks away from the marriage, then he says, you're not under bondage in such cases. You're, you're, you're free to move on. And I believe, there's, there's scholars that debate this, but I believe that what that, the point of that is that you're not bound to that covenant. It's broken because they have walked away and abandoned you. Um, I know in, in doing counseling, I know that the, the A word has thrown out a lot uh, as being a grounds for divorce, abuse. And, and here's, here's my thing. Who gets to define it? I've had a lady define it to me who said she was going to divorce her husband because of abuse. And I said, well, what, what's the abuse? Well, he comes home cranky from work. For real? What, what cannot be defined as abuse, I guess, is the question. So that's, that's difficult to do that. So here's, here would be my counsel, and this is my counsel. If a wife is being battered, that's unacceptable. If children are being battered, that's unacceptable. If he's running drugs out of the house, that's unacceptable. If he's doing illegal activities, that's unacceptable. If he's um, harming his wife in physical ways, sexual ways, all of that's unacceptable. Is that grounds for divorce? It might be eventually, but I think initially the out clause is in 1 Corinthians 7 where it says, um, I say to the unmarried, oh, I'm sorry, where are we at here? It's down at verse 10. But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, the wife should not leave her husband. Listen, let's get verse 11 here, I'm, I'm reading 1 Corinthians 7. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Here's the point. Don't leave, but if you do, you see, you see what's in that clause? Don't leave, but if you do, in other words, if you're pressed to it because he's beating you, you, you need to leave. Don't leave, but if you do, then you have two options there. Remain single or be reconciled. That's, that's how I see that verse playing out. There, there's an escape clause for destructive, abusive situations, and they can be, there, there can be a lot of them. We, we can't even name them all. But there's an escape clause. Don't leave, but if you do, here's what you do. If you have to leave, if you're forced to, if the circumstances are so dire and so difficult, then this is what you do. And, and those folks, honestly, th those, are, those are people that we help as a church, right? We help them. We help them from benevolence. We help them through counsel. We help them th through reconciliation if we can. That, that's what we do as a body. But I, I think that we're, we're definitely, in our culture, we have dumbed down what a covenant is a lot. And it means something. It means something powerful to the Lord. That's why Jesus said, if, if you divorce your wife in order to marry somebody else, you've committed adultery against her and you've caused her to commit adultery. That's really heavy language for the Son of God to use. I had some friends of our family, dear friends, their daughter um, had been married to a guy who was a believer, but he was rough. He had an affair on her. She forgave him for that. Time went past, maybe a year or two, and then at her job, she started having a little bit of an emotional connection with her boss. 
who had a much better financial position, she decided to pull the adultery card out a couple years later and go, you commit adultery on me, we're done, and I'm going to marry this guy. But they asked me to perform the wedding. What did I say? No, I, I said it stronger than that. Um, no, because if I perform, God didn't call me to perform weddings. Um, I love doing it when I feel right about it, but I'm standing before God in my opinion and saying, Lord, I believe this is right. Bless these people. In that case, I don't believe this is right. Um, so there's that. Did that answer your question, Stevens? Okay. All right, we going through the list here. I'm seeing if we're, are we going to have a vote afterwards whether I'm out, I'm off the island or what? Okay, here we go. Um, respectable, hospitable. You, you need to actually like people. Uh, you know, if you're isolated and you're, I, I, no, seriously, I have a lot of people, who, honestly, over the years that have come to our home and they'll say, I've never been in a pastor's house before. I'm like, really? Really? No, no, no one's ever invited me to come to their house before. It's been a leadership. Well, come on in. Here we are. It's just us. Um, you, know, you know, this is not a struggle. That, that's just a real thing. You, you have to like people. Can I, can I say to parents this as well? If, if your kids don't know that you enjoy being with them, then they're not going to believe that you love them. If you, if you don't have fun with them, if you don't enjoy being with them, they feel that, and they, they're not going to think that you really love them, regardless of how much you give them or how many vacations you take them on. They're not going to really believe that. There has to be the heart connection. That's a big deal. Hospitable, able to teach. It's important. We base everything on the Word of God, have to be able to handle it rightly, and draw a straight line with scripture and hold to what it says and not to be ashamed. In our culture today, the world tries to make us be ashamed for what we believe. And for me, there's no shame in me for what I believe and for what the word of God says. I bow to it. I'm underneath it and I bow to it. And that is my heart. Um, able to teach. Not addicted to wine. Well, brother, I'm, I'm not addicted to wine. Let's put the accent on the right. I'm not addicted to wine. I can give it up anytime I want. I just don't want to. Um, here's the thing. Where, where do I think the line is drawn? For me personally, I don't drink alcohol. Why? Two main reasons. One is because I was a drunk before Jesus got a hold of me, and I have an addictive personality. And if I just thought at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I'm going to go home tonight and just have a glass of wine to relax myself, then I would be having two or three, or it would be a fight. And, and, and if we're drinking, here's the thing. Can I just be honest with you? If, if we're drinking what we're drinking to get the buzz, we're addicted to it. That went over like a Led Zeppelin. Um, it's true. So let's be honest. So for me, I'm like, you know what? I don't want to be at a Bucks game or wherever I'm at. And I've got, I wouldn't have a Bud Light, but I would, maybe I'd have a, some kind of a, a beer. I don't, I don't 
I don't feel right about that at all. Because there might be people that see me. Oh, Brother Barry. Oh, what's up? I'm like. And there might be people like me that came out of alcoholic addiction that Jesus delivered us from. And I caused them to stumble. And the Bible says that if, I, if you cause your brother to stumble, that you caused them to stumble. You did it. It's not their fault for being weak. They just get over it. They're just, no. He said, you are destroying one for whom Christ died. That's a heavy accusation. So I'm like, no, I'll just abstain. I know it's become fashionable in the church. Again, there's lots of things that become fashionable. Swearing, for one thing, which I think is absolutely ridiculous. Um, worship and swearing should not come out of the same mouth. That's not hard to see, is it? Um, same thing with, with drinking. There's, there's, this is my view, okay? So here's, here's me getting into trouble. Um, I feel like our age and our culture and the church and our culture is characterized too much by carelessness, spiritually careless. I'm not a legalist. I've never been a legalist in my whole Christian life. I wasn't raised that way. But, but there is a, such a thing as calling living in the fear of the Lord. So you stay away from things that can compromise your witness for Jesus because his name is upon us and wherever we go, his name is on us. And there's people, it's crazy, there's people that see you and you don't know they see you, but they see you everywhere. I, I saw you at Walmart. I saw you, were you driving down? Yeah, like what in the world? People see you. And so you have to be conscious of, I'm carrying the name of Christ. How am I going to live my life? And so for me, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. There is good reason to sacrifice your freedom. I know we're all about freedom. We dance around freedom on the stage. We love it. Freedom, freedom, freedom. Freedom for what though? This is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13. You were set free. Therefore, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for your flesh, but rather serve one another in love. So how am I going to serve my sister who came out of alcoholism? This is not my physical sister, but I have somebody in mind who's a sister in the Lord, very precious. How am I going to serve her by drinking when I know she came out of a rough alcoholic background and if she saw me with a beer in my hand, it would shake her up. And I'm like, it's not worth it. My freedom is not worth somebody else stumbling. That's a conviction that love makes. We can, we can shout. I know we're Americans and we want to shout about our rights and about fair and all that. And that's nonsense. In the kingdom, we forfeited our rights when we came to Jesus. We said, Lord, we laid down everything that we are for your sake. How can I best serve you and best serve your people? That's the question. Not what can I do because I have the freedom. No, that's the flesh talking. That's self-will talking. That's not love talking. So, am I in trouble, babe? <laughs> okay. All right. Number nine. 
not pugnacious. It means you're not getting constant arguments. The servant of the Lord must not be quarrelsome, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, but gentle to all, patient, teaching with patience so that those who oppose may come to repentance and escape the snare of the devil. Um, if you like to fight and argue about everything, um, probably need some sanctification at work. Number 10, peaceable. I think that means, you know, the wisdom from above in James 3, 17 is peaceable. It's easily to be entreated. And so honestly, because the things that I'm passionate about, I'm passionate about, and I have strong conviction about things, and um, they, this is something that I have to be really conscious of and work on and repent over, be honest with you. Because people tell me, and even my own children have told me, um, I feel like you shut me down. When I put out an idea, you're like, bah, 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 but these 12 things, uh, you know, and I need to just shut my mouth more and listen better. So that's my confession before you. Um, people with strong convictions like me, other people can feel shut down. I, I, I tell Brandon and Dave, I say, you know what? In most conversations, I really don't care like what, what this subject is or what. But there's those conversations that I slide out to the edge of my seat. And I'm like, no, this matters. We're talking about the word of God here. We're talking about Jesus and his honor. No, that matters to me. And if we get off into those areas, then I need to go. Deep breaths. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Just chill. So I've repented to my own children. Not all of them, but some of them who let me know that I was, they felt like I shut them down. And um, I didn't even know it. They're adults now. And um, I had a Zoom call last year with um, some who was telling me this, and we're both bawling our eyes out on the phone. And I was like, I'm so sorry. I did not know, and I did not intend that. It's never been my heart for you, but please forgive me. So I think part of the, part of the process is, is being able to repent. And um, I, I asked the Lord to help me to be a good repenter because I want to repent when, when I'm wrong. Number 11, free from the love of money. How do you tell if you're free from the love of money? Let's make a list. I'm going to try your pen, Richard. Let's see if it works. If not, okay. Oh, that's beautiful. All right, love of money. How do we tell if we're free from the love of money? Somebody give me some ideas. Yes. Giving, okay. So, let's put free, <laughs> free of love of money, generous, right? Correct? Generous? What else? You don't view it as your only safety net. You don't view it as your only kind of safety net. I'm sorry. Interpretation. It's not you. It's my hearing. Oh, you're not looking at 
Oh, you're always looking at your finances. Um, okay. Okay. Here is, this is the word. Where's your security? Do you know what the, devil, the definition of an idol is? It's the thing that you worship that you draw your identity from, your security from, and you delight in. You can see why Jesus said you can't serve God in money. Because if you put your security in your stuff, if you draw your identity from what you drive, where you live, what you do, your vacations, all of that stuff, I'm not, I'm not saying any of that's wrong. This is a heart issue. Love of money is an issue of the heart. And the Bible says that it is idolatry. That's why it's not okay. Our church leader's great, except he only has one idol. No, that doesn't work. Security, identity, and delight is what defines what our idols are. And so what do we do? Do we delight in our stuff? We have to ask the question. Honestly, y'all, the Lord has blessed us. We started out poor and broke at the same time, and we were raising a large family, and we bought our food at the Dent and Bent, where you get bent cans and you get out-of-date food and you get cereal that has moths in it. Um, that's a real thing. My kids would open up the cereal and moths would fly out. They'd be like, cool. <laughs> like, this is better than any toy you can get in there. There's live things inside of that cereal. Um, <laughs> So we just kept it up and kept going there. Um, but, but the Lord, over time, after he stopped resisting me, um, he, he blessed my business and, and we began to prosper. And so we have a home. We have, you know, we have a lot of nice things. Um, but I, when I walk around my house and there's something that like pulls on my car, I really like that. I wouldn't want to give that up. I'm like, oh, I need to give that away. Wait, give me the checkbook. I need to start giving something because when that thing starts pulling on me, I'm like, no, you're not going to have my heart. I'm not going to bow to that. I'm going to give and to release it because it's not mine anyway. I'm just a steward of what God has given me, that means it doesn't belong to me. It belongs to him. And I need to use it for his glory. And here's the thing, for us as Americans, this is a very sobering thought, but it is so true. We are going, if we're stewards, we are going to give account to Jesus Christ for all of the stuff that he gave us and what we did with it. We're gonna answer to him for that. So, he says, I gave you this house, but if I want somebody to stay there, your answer is? Your answer is? No, your answer is, yes, sir. This is your house. And if I gave you that car, and I want you to pick somebody up and take him to the doctor or take him to the store or bring him to church, your answer is? Yes, sir. Because this isn't my car, it's yours. And whatever we have, this is the trade that we make. We give everything we have to him, and he gives himself and the treasures of the kingdom to us. It's an amazing trade, but we get deceived sometimes by our stuff, and we have to stay free. Hebrews 13, 5. Stay free from the love of money. Be content 
This is a lost art in the West and in America in particular. Contentment. I've wanted to preach a message on this. I was telling Diane this the other day. I need to preach about contentment in the, in the Christian life. And we're so discontent because there's always social media. Oh, dang, my car is a piece of junk compared to that. That's why I need this and I need that. How, how many know that in America, a need is defined as a desire that's lasted more than 24 hours? Now it's a need. God's going to supply all my needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I need a BMW. I've wanted it since last Friday. It's a need now, right, Lord? He's like, no, you probably need to give away your old car because you got problems. It's a, it, this is real stuff, right? Like, let's just be honest as being Americans in the wealthiest country that has ever existed in the world's history. We have superabundance. Even those of us who don't have abundance relative to our culture, we still are rich compared to the rest of the world. We have more than 98, 99% of everybody else on the face of the earth. That should sober us and go, what a stewardship. What a stewardship I have. You don't have to be a billionaire to have big stewardship. I fear for those guys who are multimillionaires and billionaires and trillionaires. I fear for them because they're going to give account to God. What did you do with my money that I put in your hands? Did you use it to further my kingdom, my honor, and my purposes? Or did you squander it on your own stupidity and idolatry? Strong words. We should, we should consider. Okay, we're getting near the end of the list. <clears throat> then we'll take a vote on whether I survive or not. Um, number 12, manage his own household well. He says, how, how are you going to lead the church of God if your own house is out of order and your kids are running wild and living like the devil? How are you, you going to do that? So that's a big, that's a big issue. This is why um, it's important for us as believers to raise our children in the nurture and the correction of the Lord because it matters. And in leadership, here's the reality. What, you, what we do in our home life and in our relationships that are closest to us actually tells what the reality of our walk with Jesus is better than anything else. That's why it's a requirement for those guys, elders, overseers, shepherds. Y your house has to be in order. Um, so I'm happy to say that Dave, Brandon, and I are all on our first and only marriage and love our wives dearly and have all endeavored to raise our kids to the honor and the glory of God. That's a big value for us in this house. That's why we rejoice with children. That's why we have diaper drops every single week, it seems like, right? Um, we have a culture of life here. We love, we love babies. We're sowing into eternity. God loves them as well. Manage his own household well, big deal. Not a new convert. Um, new converts haven't, <laughs> I'm not gonna say the phrase that my friend said at the conference we were at last week. <laughs> New converts haven't had um, enough beatings and hard knocks to learn that they're really not as smart or as spiritual 
are as strong or as courageous or as convicted or as holy as they thought. <laughs> life will do that to you. And the hard knocks of life actually show us what we are and what we need to be and how we need the grace of God. So new converts are subject to a couple things. Pride, flattery from others, manipulation from others by flattery. Um, you know, it's a, it's a heart-searching thing. If people praise you, this is, this is the book of Proverbs. I think it's chapter 26. Don't remember the exact reference, but a man is tested by the praise that's given to him. And the Holy Spirit's going, you going to take credit for that? <laughs> you going to take credit for that in your heart? Like, you are awesome? No, you're not. You're not awesome. I'm not awesome. We are what we are by the grace of God. This is what life does for us. It helps us to realize, I would have never made it through that. I would have never made it through that. I would have never survived that. I would have never reacted correctly there if it weren't for God's grace working in me and lifting me up when I wanted to give in and walk away. He helped me. There's that. There's the realization of our own weakness, our need for God that comes with experience. That's why a new convert can't be in leadership. It would be either crushing depressing, discouraging, or elating and puffing up and arrogance uh, is not okay. Number 14, have a good reputation with those who are outside. So, it, we want to go to the restaurants where you eat, I'm speaking now to myself, and see what the waitresses say about you. Does he, live a, does he live a, leave a decent tip? Or is he demanding and rude? Or is he kind and gentle? That matters. Go to the place of business where you work and ask the coworkers, hey, how's that been? What's your, what's your taste and your flavor from this guy? And if it's no good, then that's not okay. Um, this, this is what we do. This is why scripture says they must first be proven. It says that about deacons. But the, these qualifications matter. Can you see how these tie into actually being able to lead the church of God? Because example is, is hugely important. But these things, and this is amazing. This is amazing. So we get this wrong largely in the charismatic Pentecostal churches. <clears throat> we look at people in their ability to lead based on their giftedness, based on their charisma, based on the power of the whatever. And God goes, there's only one spiritual qualification in this list. Did you notice that? And it's being able to teach and handle the word of God well. All of the rest of the qualifications are actually character qualifications. Because you have to be solid in character or you are going to sink the ship and take a bunch of people to the bottom with you. And Jesus is not okay with that. He gave his blood for his people and we need to, as leaders, cherish his people and treat them well, shepherd them and oversee them well for their own good and own benefit. So that's why all these things matter. Go check. I had a business for 34 years.
ever have customers that were irate with me? Oh, yeah, I did. A few. <laughs> but for the most part, not. And sometimes, did I ever get in the flesh when dealing with customers? Oh, I wanted to take a shovel and knock them right in the side of the head. <laughs> for sure. But I did not do that. I never hit a customer in my whole life. <laughs> never. Um, but I did have thoughts I needed to repent of. Uh, nevertheless, that, that's why this matters. And um, we didn't really get down through the chapter very well. There's a lot that's in there I, I want to talk about. We'll see how we can try to make up time next time. Are y'all good? Is there anybody that wants to make a comment after my ramble here? Okay, why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. And can I, can I ask you all as my friends and as fellowship with me, if the Lord puts us as leaders on your heart, would you please pray for us? We, we deal with daunting things that are so discouraging sometimes. And we could really use the help, just be honest with you. It's mostly a joy, and we're all joyful and happy to be doing what we do. That's, that's the truth. But there's, there's moments and there's situations that just seem like, will this ever stop again? Like, what in the world? It feels like that sometimes. And so we, we do, you know, I, I know we throw this out there as a trite phrase. We covet your prayers. That's a real thing. Um, so let's pray for the Lord's kingdom to keep advancing. Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters. I thank you for your holy word. I thank you for your Holy Spirit. I thank you, Father, for your great wisdom and your grace of how you are building your church, Jesus. We just all want to be part of what you're doing, and we want to give you the honor that is due to your name, and we want to yield to your spirit and your workings and all that you desire. Would you continue to build us together as a people? Would you continue to bring forth and to birth the purposes of God in our midst and in our lives in greater and greater measure? And would you continue, Lord, to let love increase and abound in our midst? Let your name truly be honored. Let your spirit truly have freedom. And let your truth be the banner under which we fly and under which we bow our lives and our knees. That you would be the great shepherd. That you would be the king. That you would be the Lord. And that every eye would be upon you. And that all affections would be drawn to you alone, Jesus. We love you and we bless you for your goodness in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Bless you all. Thank you. We'll see you next week and we'll see what we can stir up. We hope this message has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to join us on a Sunday morning or other weekly gathering, know that you're more than welcome. And if you'd like other resources on or about this ministry, or for any deeper questions you may have, be sure to visit our website at hotfmlakeland.com.